0: We are in 1 Peter chapter 5, wrapping up the letter today, the epistle. Peter's writing to all the churches of Rome, chapter 1. He's targeting or talking about the fact that there's this rising resistance to the church. Peter saw that persecution was going to continue to intensify. So he's warning the churches, here's how you deal with persecution. This is what you do at all levels. This is how to behave. So 4.17, it's going to get worse. There's going to be some fiery trials. There's going to be some testing, and that's going to happen. How did Peter know this? Either Jesus told him this was going to happen, or in the Holy Spirit, he's recognizing that there's some shifts happening and that there is an actual battle between the people of God and the people that want to go pursue their own thing. Chapter 1 talks about girding up your loins. Being holy is our first line of... Battle. Chapter two is to live with honor towards everybody else in our life, just be honorable towards people. Um, Chapter three is to the church to have one mind and to be just connected with your church and hooked into it. Chapter four, to have fervent love for that fellowship and that this is the battle with the world. And it doesn't make sense. You'd think the battle with the world would be to go out and fight the world. But Peter says the exact opposite the way you deal with the world is to fervently love one another. And Christ said that this is how they're going to recognize you and is that they're going to see how you love one another and that's going to not make sense to them. So this seems not very battle-like as a battle plan, but it's absolutely, in fact, it's counterintuitive to our flesh. We think we need to go and address the Romans, but we really don't. What we need to do is address ourselves and our own heart. So we gird up our loins, that sounds like battle, but we gird up our loins towards fervent love. And we push that way. So Peter ends his letter with a note to leadership. Basically, keep your house in order, right? This is the thing, is that as the persecution comes, make sure the church isn't being persecuted for doing things that are illegal or out of line or disrespectful. Make sure the church is being persecuted because we're good people and because we love the Lord Jesus, and that way he gets the glory. So verse 1, The elders who are among you I exhort, who, uh, who I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers not by compulsion but willingly, nor for dishonest gain but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you but being examples to the flock. So now, You'd think, well, this isn't about me because I'm not teaching, but I would suggest that elders here, the word is Presbyteros. It's where the Presbyterians get the name of their denomination, elders. The idea of the Presbyteros is that there is an age um, of those that preside over assemblies. So there's some connotation of age here, but it's really about maturity. People walking firmly in their faith. So when he's talking to elders, he's not just talking to teachers. We're going to see that a little bit. But there is an implication here that he's talking to some of these folks. They take the term Presbyteros from the Jewish tradition. The Sanhedrin were considered Presbyteros. They were the elders. They were the people that should know better when things go on. So within the church, you have mature believers, and there's an implication of age and wisdom, but that's not necessarily a thing about chronological age. The idea then is that they're mature and they're wise and they're not necessarily the Levites. They're not necessarily the priest, right? So one thing we do know about elders in the church is that they were publicly chosen and ordained. It is a role. It's a, the church has order to it. It has respond, like levels of duty. In Acts 14.23, when he had ordained the elders in every church, so a formal position, Paul would start churches, ordain elders, and leave. And let them run their own thing. So he is exhorting them. The word there is parakaleo. Um, again, same root word as paraclete. So this idea of giving an instruction or an idea. Paraclete from the Holy Spirit. Parakaleo from an elder, from, from Peter. Uh, and he's and it really the word here is parakaleo is a call to nearness. To someone to summon somebody to come close to you. So Peter says, To the elders who are among you, I exhort um, I want you to come close to this idea. Peter's credentials, he lists them out. He is an elder. He's a mature believer. Two, he is a witness, verse one, of, the, of what happened with Jesus. And that's an odd thing, like a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Yet we know from the book of Mark that he kind of was in the wrong spot when Christ suffered. So at best, he witnessed it from a distance. Right. So this isn't really an area of success for Peter. And then a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Again, kind of an embarrassing thing. When Peter was there and saw the transfiguration of Christ, he started wanting to make tents. Like he totally misunderstood the situation. So I think we're going to find as we go through the chapter, everything Peter encourages the elders to do, he screwed up on at one point or another. Like these are all things where he's speaking from experience um, as we go through this. So elder he exhorts the elders he calls them close is to exhort somebody Um, we hear exhort and i think sometimes that gets a negative connotation like a rebuke but an exhort is simply like that call to be closer to christ and to not keep drifting away a rebuke is when you do something sinful or out of line with god's law and you have to say hey what you're doing isn't what the word of god says to do but an exhortation is you need to take another step in your growth Come a little closer to Christ in this. So Peter's putting himself in the same position. He says, I who am a fellow elder. This is a not a good line for the Catholic Church. <laughs> Peter never gave himself the title of Pope. He never exalted himself to a position of authority. In fact, he's appealing to the church. And I think this chapter, honestly, he explains his worldview on this. He appeals to the church as a peer and as a fellow elder, or just another person who's a mature believer. And that's all he's given. Like, hey, listen to me because I'm also a mature believer. And, and I want you to hear what I'm saying. He's a first person witness, and that he was there for Jesus as he, as he ministered. And he saw the transfiguration a little bit different than other elders, and that he's had some unique experiences. So listen to me. I've had some good experiences, I know what I'm saying. But that idea that he he lets himself be an equal. We'll come back to that idea. But that idea of church leadership being among and with people, and being a, a partaker with other people in the congregation. Um, so it's an odd thing because you have overseers in the church, episcopos. We're going to get to that word. You have overseers in the church that are equal to everybody else in the church. So it's a learning from example or a learning from from an equal position. Um, the shepherding of the flock in verse two. I think it's an interesting translation. The only person to feed sheep. So the word shepherd there is poimano. It has nothing to do with being a shepherd. It has to do with feeding. So if I feed my chickens, that's poimano. So when it says feed the flock, really the only person that would feed a flock is a shepherd. And in fact, in fact the shepherd doesn't feed the flock directly. The shepherd just brings people to the, brings the flock to the grassy fields so they can eat for themselves. This is an interesting image. I think it's a really robust, complex, intellectual image in that the pastoral duty of the church is to feed the flock. But when a shepherd feeds, all all that person does is says, here's the grassy fields. Now you need to eat. And that's all we do when we go through the word together. We read the word and I break it down. I tell you the Greek and all that. But all I'm doing is saying, here's the grass, you guys eat, have fun. And so the role of a shepherd is not literally spoon feeding sheep. There's an expectation that sheep know how to bow their head and eat all by themselves. In fact, I love reading through how shepherds operate because it's the image. I think God made sheep for this image in the Bible. They're a unique animal and how you care for them is a unique set of practices. Jesus told Peter this three times, feed my sheep. If you love me, feed my sheep. It's all Jesus ever asked of Peter, really. Feed my sheep. He didn't ask Peter to to literally open a restaurant. What he meant was to teach them the word. That's all, like, tell people what I've said to you. And that's all Peter was supposed to do. So if you have feeders in the church, you also have eaters in the church. And this is kind of an odd balance. Like, if Peter's job is to feed the flock, and that's his first role. It means to remind people, teach people, read them the Bible, preach to them sometimes. But that idea of not neglecting the primary duty of the elders is to teach the word or to feed the flock. Feed the flock. So here we have the roles of keeping the flock together. That's part of feeding the flock. Like if your flock is straying off and going over cliffs, the idea is you, you exhort them to come closer. To guide them to the grass. And then the last part of feeding the flock would be to kill or shoo away predators. If you got people that get in the way of people just hearing the word and growing in their faith, those people gotta be gone. They're lions and they're wolves and they're getting in the way of the primary duty of the church, which is for people to come and eat. It's where the sheep come to eat, right? And that's what the church is. So there's a food that has to be there and, and sheep need to be able to eat without the threat of wolves around them. They need to be able to relax, because you can't hear the word when you're worried about what people think in the room. Right? And you have to and some of that's on you, but some of that is like keeping that keeping that environment healthy regardless of of uh, what the wolves think about you. So John 10:11, Jesus says, "I'm the good shepherd." The good shepherd gives life for the sheep. Shepherds don't always provide food, but they direct towards the food. Here's where we're reading in the Bible today. You'll notice I don't take a poll on that like we're going to do the next book and this is the book we're going to do. Um, some pastors take that as this is how they do thematic teaching. So they'll pick where in the Bible to study that week. So in some denominations, some churches, they don't go chapter by chapter. They let the pastor direct to where the food's going to be that week. There's a danger in that and that other places of the Bible encourage pastors to teach the entirety of the word of God. And Paul is proud of the fact that he, when he left a church, he had taught them the entire Bible. And, now, and, and then he picked elders, and then they were supposed to go through it themselves. So he says, which is among you? This creates a tension with pastors. We're among the flock. We're a sheep ourselves because the good shepherd is Jesus, not the teacher. So when a shepherd directs a flock to a patch of grass to eat, that shepherd isn't necessarily the owner of the sheep. In fact, almost always the shepherd was some 12-year-old kid That was taking care of the sheep on behalf of the sheep owner and the church works the same way the church doesn't belong to the pastor the church belongs to jesus christ the pastor is simply the 12 year old kid that directs people to because they know where the food is and they know where the dangers are so there's somebody that's got some experience and knows how to do that so the tension of being among the body being a sheep yourself but also being the most mature sheep perhaps that knows where the grass is and where the dangers are, that you then become a servant of that flock. You become a helper. Thus, you get serving as overseers. The word overseer in the Greek is episkopeo, which is where we get the word episcopalian. So you get lots of these words today. We're getting into denominational thing. It's odd that the denominations always pick the word for leader versus the word for, like. there's no ministerios denomination, which is the word for servant but they pick these like boss terms and then they make a denomination from that. I just thought that was an interesting thing. Um, But an episcopeo is someone who looks on, inspects or cares for somebody else's stuff. They're diligent overseers, but they're not the owners. And so there's an interesting idea that if a pastor becomes a buddy to everybody, then they're not really, they're losing some authority when they do that. Pastors not necessarily everybody's pal, right? On the same sense, the pastor's not above everybody and they're not beyond everybody. So this is a weird tension that you get in the pastorship. And I'll speak from personal experience. It's tough because you have to have enough distance to be able to speak into people's lives, but you have to have enough closeness to where people want to hear it. You know, it's an odd kind of thing. So you have, just in these first couple sentences, you've got the flock, people that need to eat the word of God, You've got the elders, presbyteros, men with maturity. Hopefully there's lots of those. The word, the elder is the person. Overseeing is the work, the ministry of that person. And then you have poimano, the method of feeding somebody. So hopefully you have at least somebody that knows how to teach the word in the church. Hopefully you have a few more of those people are overseers or know how to watch the flock and see who needs what. Are the sheep all together or are they not? And then hopefully you've got tons of people that are elders. They know what they're doing and what they're there. However, elders are also an appointed position. So you look at Timothy and Titus, they give criteria for those positions. They're trained as to what you're looking for with those folks. And and it's interesting because even in a house church like this, initially when we became affiliated, we had elders that were other pastors from other churches. But those other pastors are saying, as you move forward as a church, you're looking for mature elderly believers that you can start having be part of the council for your church body or whatever. So I've asked Mike Houck to kind of join for that next meeting. And so as we go through the years, we're looking for those people that they've, you know, if you look at Timothy and Titus, they've, they're, they're married to one wife, not more, you know, they're not polygamists. Uh, They're, they're peaceful. They know the word of God. They have a passion for the word of God. They have a passion for the flock. They care about the people around them and they're generally respected by the body. Like most of the people in the body look to that person for advice when they need it. So in, in some sense with an elder, you're recognizing what's already there. You're not going out and like giving people positions, which we'll get into here as we, we get some of the criteria that Peter gives for this. But this is, you know, I, I think it's applicable to the church, but to, for generalization, I think this is also applicable to households. Like there's an idea that this is how you lead. It's applicable to the workplace. Like we should, as, as Christian leaders in the church, I think as we go into this, not, not by compulsion, but willingly, that's an important concept for any leadership role and, and as we go through things. So you're supposed to lead not by compulsion, but willingly. What does that mean? You shouldn't have to recruit leaders. And all too often when churches have ministries and they got tons of things and then people get tired and they get wore out, they start to like say, I gotta retire from this. I'm getting burnt out on it. And then the church, instead of letting the ministry dry up, they go out and recruit for people to do things. And sometimes you got to do some iron twisting. Can you do this? Can you please do that? And I I've found, and, and I've I've seen it not just in our family Bible study, but in larger churches, the two, three hundred that we've gone to, leaders tend to rise up. You don't have to go recruit them. They're people that love doing what they're doing, not by compulsion, but willingly is what the scriptures say. So you can't force a person to be a pastor, right? So we asked, uh, we asked one young man to teach tonight, and he's like, I don't know if I'm ready. Okay, we're, no, there's no compulsion here. So we backed off instantly. No, no guilt, no shame, no harm. And we don't have Bible study tonight because if we don't have a willing person, then we don't have a person. And like, like, let's be okay with that. There's no harm, no foul. We'll be back next week because I love doing this. Like, There's not an issue there in that sense. So my grandma used to say it this way, that for a godly person, because I used to say, which grandkid do you love the most? Expecting the right answer to that question. (laughs) And she would just say, you know, with every grandkid, God opens a new room in my heart. And then my literal brain started to think, well, how many, there's only four chambers to the heart. So then who got pushed out? But that idea of like opening more chambers, and she'd just say, that's the thing. The older you get, the more rooms you get in your heart. And you just, God gives you more rooms. It's a, it's a spiritual thing, Sean. And I'm thinking I want to do surgery on this woman. Um, but I never did. There's no laziness allowed for a pastor. To be willing to do things means, means to some extent that you've got a work ethic to where you have room to do it. If you're too burnt out to do ministry, then come to church and be blessed, breathe, be refreshed. Let God build in you that desire and willingness because I think he'll give you ways to do that through your life. Um, But the idea that you just come to eat is perfectly okay. And I think in the church, sometimes we think, I'm going to get saved, what can I do for ministry? But maybe being blessed is okay. Because it shouldn't be something where there's that compulsion of, I got to do this. You don't have to do anything to make God happy. But there is a a thing with maturity, as people become kind of elders in the faith, that you just have more time, more willingness, more heart to do some of those things. So you enter pastoring out of that willingness which is the opposite of a human compulsion. Compulsion usually comes from yourself or from other people telling you you got to do things. Oh, you got such a gift. You should do this. You have to do this. The church would be so blessed if you did this thing. And that's different than just recognizing and complimenting people. But human compulsion is the opposite of God's will for you. And when other people tell you you have to do things or you got to do things, be wary of that, even if it's your own mother be wary of it. In contrast to God's will, where God speaks to you directly. This is, again, this is a tough part of being an elder too. For elders, a pastor can reach out and ask for help with things, or it can express a need to a body, um, and that can be a compulsion. So if I said, hey, we want to start a blueberry picking ministry, and I'm looking for people that are interested in blueberry picking, what I'm doing is I'm searching the, the spirits for that. And if you ask yourself, do I want to pick blueberries? and there's nothing in you that says, I want to pick blueberries, then the answer is no. And if an entire church is like, nope, no desire to pick blueberries. Well, as a pastor, I threw it out there, but I'm not. it's not a compulsion thing when you do that. It's really just to check your heart and see if you want to do it. On the other hand, what happens when 90% of the church says, yes, I would love to pick blueberries. I would love to learn how to do maple syrup. And you got half the church going down to do maple syrup. Well, we can, bless, we can bless the heck out of a family by getting a boatload of work for them and doing maple syrup for them and really just, and, and putting, you know, just work and time into their pocket, but it's done out of this place of joy and interest um, and fun. And that said, <laughs> there's a level too where you do it willingly, but that doesn't mean it's easy the whole time. Sometimes you commit to a ministry and you give your word to it for a year, but then it's a grind and God tests you in that grind. Like this is going to be a lot of work but there's still a willing heart to go through the grind, right? It's not easy every week to do ministry. Some weeks it's tough, but you know that you love to do it and you made a commitment to do it. So there's a willing heart. So we, we, we keep that. Here's another one, not for gain, but eagerly. Actually, not for, for dishonest gain or filthy lucre. Um, you should never go into ministry to make money. Like, like and some people joke about that, like, like uh, what's the difference between a pizza and a pastor? Well, the pizza can feed a family of four. And so there's, there's this idea out there that pastors don't make a lot of money, but we know darn well there are people that go to college and they go straight into the ministry. It's a career path for them. And this doesn't say that that's wrong directly because you can still say, I need a job and you can't figure out how to do things, so you go into the ministry. And I don't know if that's the right reason to be dependent on a salary. Like I can't preach this passage because I'm gonna, people are going to get upset and leave the church. That becomes a real problem in the ministry for pastors. The passion for what we're doing should be willing, but it should also be eager. I'm eager to teach God's word regardless of the impact that it has on the audience. That means that I'm not tied up with money. It's not, that's not a, a reason I do or don't do things. Paul also tells Timothy that the laborer is worthy of the reward. In other words, you know, don't don't take the grain away from the ox. If you're there and you're serving and you're working every week, the church should take care of you at some point. But that's not the reason Timothy does it, right? It's the church taking care of a pastor in that sense. So there is, again, this tension between, okay, I'm going to do ministry, but I'm not going to do it for money. But if they want me to be full-time ministry, then I actually need to have food on the table too, So the early disciples in the book of Acts were serving tables at mealtime because yes, they served meals at church and they were doing the dishes and they were picking up, but then people were upset that they wanted more Bible studies. And they said, well, we can't do more Bible studies if we're busy serving tables. So they had this huge thing in the church where they're like, okay, we need to pick some people to serve tables. And this was a high honor to serve tables with the church because they only wanted godly people serving the tables because there's this image that these people serving the tables, they got their act together. They're examples to follow. So here's people in the church that are serving in the church. You should look to them for, if you got a question about your faith, whoever's picking up the dishes is somebody you should ask about that. So it's a really like an, an odd tension between the two. So a congregation supporting their cha- pastor versus a pastor needing to do that in order to do the ministry. Uh, so it's a, re- it's a different thing. And again, this is a lot of denominations. Pastoring and ministering is a profession. And that's just the way we've gone. Based on Peter, I don't know if that's such a good trend in the church. Like, maybe we should have more tent makers like Paul, right? And maybe that wouldn't hurt our church to have that sort of thing going on. So there's an interesting contrast here. Filthy lucre versus eagerly. The word eagerly in the Greek means a clear mind. And you can see how greed versus clarity are in contrast with each other. If I'm worried about tithe money, then I can't teach with a clear mind. I have hesitation before I teach God's word. And God's word often says stuff that convicts us. And that's just how we got to deal with it. So there's no hesitation. A clear mind means no grumbling, no looking back, clarity of purpose and kind of a joy. Like I know why I'm teaching the word because I love the Lord and I want other people to see what I see when I read the book. And so a pastor being worried about other things doesn't have a clear mind. His soul isn't ready to teach. An eager heart isn't worried about reward provision or payment. It's not a focus. It's not what they're thinking about. And that's a tough thing. If, if your heart is consumed with where's my next paycheck coming from, that's a tough place to be when you're doing ministry. So getting your life in order to where that next paycheck isn't your primary worry anymore. First of all, what a glorious step to take in life, right? Where that's not such a huge concern. Then you got the third one. They're not lords, but they're examples. Pastors aren't bosses of you. That's how a little kid would say, you're not the boss of me. And that's true, pastors aren't bosses. They don't get to command. Jesus is our Lord and Savior, not our pastors. And so pastors are stewards of somebody else's flock. And that's how the image Peter gives us. A Lord is somebody that has power over another person. They subjugate, they make demands, they expect things, and they order things. Unhealthy churches on this side of the spectrum you get pastors that start bossing people around and telling them what to do. It's very dysfunctional. And Peter says right here that you sh- that should not be what it looks like. A Lord says, you shall do these things. An example says, I'm going to do these things. Follow me. See the difference? Right? So to be among people and to be an example. The word, I love the word example. In the Greek, it's tupas. And that's not like a rap star or anything like that. It's where, we, it's, it's where we get the term typeset or type or font type. It's a mark or a blow, an imprint that, a, that an object makes on something else, a tupas. Pastors are supposed to be a mark or a blow in your life. And here's how. If you know that guy lives that way, you have no excuses but to move in that direction. When you see somebody that's mature in the faith, they're living in that, and they're not perfect. They got mistakes, but they're actively pursuing the Lord with everything they got. You can't take that out of your life. It's an imprint on you, just like a typeset or a type font, right? It's a printed into the paper that makes a mark, an example. So pastors are not to be lords bossing you around, but they are someone that as you get to know them, they make an imprint on your life. And I think that's amazing. What a beautiful thing. Pastors are elders or overseers that have Jesus imprinted on them and then they imprint Jesus on other people. And you're all called to do the same thing. You're all called to be examples of Jesus Christ. So you just have a sheep that's the the most sheepiest of the sheep amongst the sheep. An imprinter of figure. So think of it this way. We're not the doctor at the hospital. We're all patients at the hospital. Only some people are further along in their healing process than others. And those people, when somebody new comes into the hospital and wakes up from the ER, those people are the ones that say, here's where the jello is. This is where the ice cream is. If you need a nurse, you press this button. The more veteran patients are the, the elder patients are the ones that tell the other patients how to get healed. But it's not that they're healthy themselves. They're still healing too. And we're all waiting for the doctor to show up, right? To finish that deal. So, Paul uses the same word, example. He translates it, at least in my Bible, it's translated a pattern of something. Titus 2.7, In all things, show yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility. You, a pastor should be incorruptible. You can't get them to do those things. They should be reverent of their Lord. They should be given the glory to God. They should have integrity. What they say is what they mean, and it holds true. And they should be solid in their doctrine. And according to Paul, they should have good works in their life. They should be doing good things for other people. That's a pastor, an imprint or an example. Um, in the Calvary tradition, we say that pastor is a term of affection and recognition of those traits. It is not a term of authority or, or prestige or position in any other regard than that the pastor says, we're going to go eat grass over here today right and that's that's it leading the flock is not how the world leads people it's very different we lead by living it by loving the people and by leaning into the ministry we live it we love it we lean in that's leadership in the church in the world it's very different it's whoever has the position and can fire you right whoever writes the paychecks runs the show but it's the opposite in the church pastor doesn't write the paychecks they accept the gifts of the church So they're among the flock and they're over the flock at the same time. And we resolve that tension simply by being an example and by living it. That's how pastors, that's how in the church we resolve that tension. Once again, from Aru, a guide on how to take care of sheep. Are you ready? This is actual instructions on taking care of real sheep. In order to effectively lead sheep, shepherds must be able to read the animal's body language and understand their needs. The most common method is to walk in front of the flock with the sheep following behind. You have to be with the flock to do that. The shepherd may also use a dog to help keep the flock together and moving them in the right direction. Thank you, Timber. We're all studying the words, so Timber takes a nap. Everything is good. It is important for the shepherd to have a clear idea where they're going and what they want the flock to do. They should be an example. The shepherd must also be aware of potential hazards along the way, such as cliffs or rivers, and take steps to avoid them well before getting into proximity of them. Seeing a flock of animals sat- safely reach their destination is a satisfying feeling for any shepherd, end quote. I love that. Like, they could just be writing instructions for pastors right here, and that's exactly what Peter is doing, right? He's telling you how to be a shepherd. Most animals require prodding, poking. If you want to move a goat or a mule, you poke them from the back. If you want to move a llama, don't stand in front. You'll get spit on. If you want to move a llama, you poke them from the back. If you want to move a flock of sheep, you get out in front of them and you lead the way and the sheep just go that, hey, we're going the right way. We're on track. It's a beautiful thing. Here's, uh, this is from Illinois Livestock Instructions. Because of their instinct to stay close together, sheep will move towards another sheep or a perceived friend. Oftentimes a friend can be a person, particularly if the person feeds, feeds the sheep. Oh, it's because we weren't running the slides. I didn't get my reminder. Who calls on a Sunday morning? Ah. I love that. The Illinois livestock thing is feed the sheep take care of them. You know who, and I think there's something natural here when you get a good Bible teacher and you appreciate them. Like I'm this, I'm like, there's Bible teachers that don't even know me, but I listen to their stuff all the time. You feel really close to that. I feel close to Chuck Smith and he's dead. Right. But I feel like when I see him in heaven, I'll be like Chuck and he'll be like, yeah, I know I was watching you listen from heaven. Like we're, we're close. We're going to have some coffee together. John Corson asks this question with this passage. When you look at the church and how different people behave in the church, I think there's, for prideful people, there's a temptation to say, I want to be a pastor someday. And for shamed people, they think I could never be a pastor any day. And there's something right in the middle called humility. And this is what we're called to in this. But John asks this question about different roles in the church. Different people act different ways. There's more flock than there is shepherd, Right. He said, if everybody in the church acted just like you do, what would the church look like? This is a great question. If you're asking about if you're an example or not, think of it this way. When it comes to missions, if everybody in the church did as much missions as you do, would there be missions in the church? It, cleaning up or setting up. If everybody in the church did as much setup and cleanup help as you do, would any of that ever get done? You hear the question and how deep that goes? If prayer, if everybody in the church prayed as much as you do, would we have a prayer ministry? Would there be people praying for the body? Would we be asking the Lord for things? Tithing, food prep, leading a Bible study, worshiping and praising. If everybody in the church worshiped like you do, would there be worship in this church? And would we be praising the Lord? Here's the thing we're all called the different elements of that. But when you ask yourself, am I growing? Am I an example for other people? You think if everybody did it the way I do it, what would our ministries look like? What would it be like? I love that question. For me, that's convicting. And I like good convicting questions. We want to be examples. We want to be spiritually dynamic. We want to be growing in our faith because that affects the whole body. And I think how Peter ends on this elder conversation, he's actually still talking to the whole church right? And he's still looking at that. Be an example. It doesn't matter how big the church is or how little the church is. Peter encourages them to feed, serve, be willing, be eager, be examples. This is how you fight growing persecution by the Roman Empire, is just do these things. Look, look at yourself and look at the church. Verse four, we'll move on. And when the chief shepherd appears, because we're not the chief shepherds, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Just a reminder, Jesus is coming. That's an important thing to know. It's his flock. We're held account to Jesus on our behavior. And I think this is helpful. Pastors don't work for the sheep. They don't owe the sheep an explanation in that sense. Some people really struggle with this idea. Pastors, you work for us. And churches where the pastor is terrified of their flock is not a well-led flock right? And we work for the shepherd. We're a steward led model church. We work for Jesus. And if you want to come along, that's great. And if you don't, you don't have to. Whereas they said in the movie, the door works both ways, right? It's a free, free kind of engagement thing. But there is a crown of glory in verse four. I want to talk about that. There are different crowns mentioned in the Bible, There are various things that we do as believers that actually, it's almost like the boy and Girl Scouts that got little badges on their little sash. There is a recognition in heaven of those that did this test the right way, right? And I know the thief on the cross next to Jesus, he's in heaven too, probably doesn't have a lot of crowns on his head. When you're saved and you're a believer, you're thinking, okay, I I want a crown of glory. I think that'd be wonderful. So there's an appreciation of this Everyone that's faithful to Jesus gets a similar crown. This is not just for pastors. 1 Corinthians 9.25. Every man that strives for the mastery of the temperate in all things, now they do it to obtain a a corruptible crown, but we do it to obtain an incorruptible crown. Everybody that moderates their life and starts living it like God says to, there's a crown of glory for that. James 1.2. Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he's tried, he shall receive the crown of life. One of the crowns you get is if you accept Jesus as your savior, you get a crown of life. You get eternal life. That's one of the gifts you get for serving Jesus. The Lord has promised that to all who love him. Do you love Jesus? I got to tell you, like, I love the idea of Jesus for years. I love the, the, the results of godly living for years. But to actually fall in love with my God... I had to read Deuteronomy and Leviticus. I had to read the will of God for my life to recognize how amazing and beautiful my God is. I had to study other religions and realize there's no other God that actually cares for me in any other religion, but this religion, the claim is this God cares for me, and then I pray for things, I obey him, and I see the results of that in my life, and I actually get a reciprocal relationship with my God. I'm absolutely in love with God but I don't know that I always lived that way. But there's a crown of glory for those that love him. Right? Matthew 25, 23, well done, good and faithful servant. That's a crown of glory too. Just getting to heaven and having God say, well done, you did good. And I, to me, that's one of the most motivating verses in the Bible. I don't really, I'm, I'm not into impressing this world. If I did, I would be walking around with a little badge with all my labels and honors and certifications on it so that people saw all of that all the time but I am living so that I get to heaven and God says well done good and faithful servant you did what I asked you to do you were faithful faithful and just verse five likewise you younger people (laughs) you submit yourselves to your elders yes all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility there it is For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 3.34 Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he might exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. I got ahead of myself there. There's that he cares for you part. He actually loves you. Likewise, you younger people. The word in the Greek there is neos. So elders are um, presbyters, are olders, and then neos are newbies. So... Peter recognizes in the church, you got elder mature believers, you got newbies that are still working on it. So if you're a newbie, here's what you do. Submit yourself to your elders. Like try to listen to what they're telling you to do. And we've had a whole discussion on the word submission as we got into that back in chapters two and three and four. Peter doesn't see submission as a bad thing. He sees it as the way you learn how to behave. If you take on a new job, day one on the job, you're submitting to those bosses to learn what they want you to do. And in the church, if you're a newbie and you don't quite have it all worked out yet, God bless you, that's wonderful. Start looking at how to live by asking for advice. Great way to submit to your elders is to say, hey, what do you think of this thing I'm about to do? And the elder will hopefully give you an honest opinion. So get wisdom, get advice. Submitting yourself is the same term in the Greek as submitting to governments, chapter 213, submitting to bosses, 218, husbands 3.1 and angels unto God in 3.22. The word submission has been throughout first Peter but the idea is just there is an order to the universe there's an order to how God has things and if you're an immature believer start looking to the elder believers to figure out how to live and then he expands it like he starts with that thought of you know newbies learn from your elders and then at the end of verse five he's like wait a second yes All of you be submissive to one another. You should all be learning from each other, which means mature believers have something to learn from young believers. And here's what I'd suggest that is. Young believers are enthusiastic about their faith. They're ready to go tell people about it. There is something that happens in the Christian church, and and maybe I just haven't been in good ones, but it seems like the more mature elder believers get, there's a tendency to isolate and just live in our own cocoon. But young believers are like, no, I still love these people in the world. I know a ton of sinners. I want all those sinners to come with me. And something elders have to learn from youngers or newbies is how to be enthusiastic about the faith. Don't think that being stoic is to be godly. To be highly enthusiastic and willing to talk about your faith with everyone you know is something that newbies just have. And it's, and it's something that I think that elders can learn from. So how can you do that? Yes, all of you need to do it. El- newbies, mature believers, immature believers, we all serve humbly in order to preserve and serve the flock. Flock serves the pastor, pastor serves the flock, everybody's submitting to one another. We all do things for one another. And in that, we have a lot of gain. To be clothed in humility, another great phrase. Clothed here is to put on a, a, a garment And the connotation of this word is to get dressed for work. And he started in chapter one with gird up your loins, which is how you get ready to do work. And when he says clothed with humility, he's using a word that comes from the same thing. We might say put on your apron, right? If you're going to go barbecue or or get on your helmet. If you're going to go work construction, clothe yourself, get ready to do work in the kingdom by putting on humility. So if I have to put something on, I would like to point out, That means that we're not naturally garbed with this. If I have to put something on, it is from outside of me that I have to put it on. Most people are not naturally humble. In fact, I think this is one of the chief things in the faith, is that there's no assumption by Peter that humans are humble. We have to clothe ourselves in humility. We have to put it on. The by far default of humanity is to cry and ask our mama to give us food which is entirely selfish. It's all about me. Take care of me. Do things for me. My diapers are full, and I don't even have the wherewithal to clean that up myself. I need someone else to clean it up. And that's where humans start. We start as entirely selfish human beings, but in a new life in Christ, we start to think of other people. We become capable of thinking of other people. And I've heard non-believers argue, there is altruism outside of the kingdom. Yeah, but to what end? Right, why are you being altruistic? Is it because you were told that that's a good thing to do? Who defined that as good in the first place? This is Nietzsche's argument. Outside of God, why would anyone be good to anyone else? Just serve yourself. And the ultimate end of serving yourself is to create a kind of hell for everyone around you, including yourself. Right? So that we have this interesting idea in Christianity to be clothed with humility. There are some other religions that emphasize humility too. Like Buddhism's really good at this. But it's a true statement inside or outside the Christian church that to be clothed with humility is a way to live that actually has some positive benefits to it. So we get dressed for work by putting on humility. It's a decision we make. You choose to take the job. You choose to put on the clothes. You choose to go to work. So literally in the Greek, humility is a compound word. And the first part of the word means to not rise too high off the ground and the second part of the word means in your mind or in your head. To be humble is to not elevate yourself above the other people in your head. You're, you're with the flock. You're equal to the flock. You're not the black sheep of the flock. You're not the burden of the flock, and you're not the lord of the flock. You're not below the ground, but you're not up off the ground either. You're with the flock. So when we say not my will, but God's will, that's the definition of humility is to remain grounded, to stay on the ground and to not elevate yourself. To be a right living person is not to be less than others, but it's also not to be more than others. Somewhere in the middle, humility. The idea of to be proud is another compound word. It means beyond light. I think that's a great, proud is to be beyond light. You're better than the light that shines and you think that way. So you think you shine brighter than you do is to be proud and God doesn't like that. He actually resists it. Resist there is a military term. God sets himself up in array against proud people. You think you shine so bright and then he tells us that we're supposed to be examples. We're supposed to actually reflect God. We're not the light. We're just the reflection of it. Don't think I'm perfect. Think the God who I'm reflecting is perfect. He gets the glory, not me. So we're not better than light. We're not beyond light. We simply reflect it, right? Oh, that was such a good food that you made. Well, praise the Lord, because God put in my heart the desire to make food for you. It's a reflection of God. And we're under the mighty hand of God. We're humble to God, but we're actually, we're humble to other people. We're at the same level, but we're clearly under God. And it's the same idea as you're not a lord over the flock, you're in the flock. Humility isn't to think less of yourself or to shame yourself either. You got some people that come into the church and like, all these people are better than me. No, we're not. Stop puffing us up off the ground, right? We're just on the ground with you. We're flock too, And we live that way. We exalt our pastors. Our pastors so perfect. And then when they, you know, hit their thumb and creep out a swear word, it shatters your world because they just spoke in a certain way. No, pastors are human too, but hopefully they're examples of how to reflect the light of God in a way that you respect and you regard. Maybe not the way you're going to do it, but clearly here's somebody who loves the Lord. It's interesting because even this idea of humility, Peter screwed up at this. Remember when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet? Peter is the one that argued with Jesus about this. Well, I would not have you wash my feet. And Jesus is just like, he's trying to show them a model of what this looks like. And Peter argues with the model. No, 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 you're above me, right? You can't wash my feet, right? So instead of taking and accepting that he's another peer of the flock, Peter had a ranking order that he's getting rid of here. It's interesting that Peter's the one preaching these things to us, and Peter just screwed up on every one of these points. Yet that means there's grace, which we'll get to at the end of the chapter. God actually used somebody who screwed it up to teach us how to do it right. So at one point he was a neo believer, now he's an elder believer. It's really cool that he may exalt you. Um, there's no exemption, uh, ex- expectation that you get praise for it. Um, and again, there's there's none, no expectation later either. The word may is in there that he may exalt you. You may or may not get credit for what you do in the church. Is that what do you need credit for what you get done in the church? Or maybe we just do it because we love the Lord. That's not the point. Exalting isn't the point. So in due time, we don't look for immediate gain. We look for it, for attention for people. We, we look for exalting. We don't look for it in due time, and we don't necessarily look for it now. We just do it because we love the Lord. We're not here to get famous. We're here to get the work done that God's called us to do, Period. Castings, verse 7, casting all your cares upon him. Oh, what an idea. If we work for God, we're under God, then our cares that we have in life are one of the things we sacrifice. We, you know, I don't care. That's not the, what I'm saying. I do care, but I cast them on Jesus Christ. The word casting there is eripto It's to throw off. It's to rip something off and throw it away violently. So casting your cares upon him. And, and Peter's a fisherman. He knows what the word cast means, right? You take that lure and you whip it out there. You take that net and you throw it as hard as you can. You Cast it. So there's this connotation of taking what you care about and saying, not only do I want, don't want it, I want to get it far away from me as fast as possible because it's getting in the way of my sober minded work for God. I can't think clearly when I have cares that are a burden for that. This doesn't mean to like not care about your personal appearance. That's a different kind of care. This doesn't mean that you don't care about other people. This is a different kind of care. This is to take those things that give you worry and anxiety and stress in life and say those things belong to God. If he's your master and your caretaker, it's not your business to worry about those things. So you put them away. Think of it this way. You come up to serve, so you come up to somebody's house and you're, and you're saying that person's moving. So you're like, here, I'm here to help you move. And they look at you and they see a backpack with 300 pounds of weight in it. And they look at you going, you're going to help me move with that backpack. Yep. I'm taking all my cares with me and I'm here to serve. How can I help? You're not a very good servant when you bring your own baggage with you. So sometimes, and this is tough, this is a really hard thing to hear for some people because we embrace those things. There are concerns. We own them. But do you, if you gave your life to the Lord, are they yours to own anymore? So you take off the backpack if you want to help. And so as he's talking to elders in the church here, mature believers, you got to take those cares and cast them away. They're not. It's not your business anymore. It's, you know, it's an interesting idea that he may exalt you in due time Casting all your cares upon him, because we work for him, we fixate not on our own worries, cares, and troubles. We fixate on the Lord's concerns and the ministries of God. How do we share the word of God with as many people as possible? How do we become examples of Christ to everybody that knows us? Those are the things we fixate on. How do we embrace the, the, the depth of the scriptures better? How do we pray in such a way that we cast all of our cares upon him and we align our will with his will? It doesn't say to lay your cares. It doesn't say to nice and neatly set them aside. It says to cast, throw, reject. Usually a term used with garbage. You throw out the garbage, you cast it away. Prayer and faith is what it takes to do that. We have to pray to tell God that those cares are his and then we have to have faith that he will take care of those things. Boy, what a gift for kids that grow up in Christian homes that just learn how to do this from the beginning. What a gift. My goodness. That's one of those testimonies. You know, usually testimonies are, I was this far down the road of perdition. And then they talk, but what, wouldn't it be nice to have somebody get up on a stage and say, I was raised in a godly home. I was taught humility. I learned how to cast my cares away. I was super blessed by not getting into those things. And I've been growing since I was five. What a gift. Parents are often judged by the actions of their children. And as a Christian, we always ask, here's a care that we have. What kind of kid am I and what kind of glory do I give to my father? So if I'm walking around the world and I'm fretting all the time and I'm worried all the time, what does that say about my father who's promised to take care of me? Right? And we love to, you got nasty little kids running around. We love to judge the parents. Those people are bad parents, but people do the same thing with God. If, if you're a Christian and that's the kind of parenting you're getting from your father in heaven, my goodness, I, your father stinks. You're horrible. You're a mess. That doesn't mean to fake it. Sometimes there's pains and hurts and damage that we got to deal with, but that's what the newbies in the church are dealing with. And we have patience for that, right? As elders, we had to deal with those things too. And eventually they do evaporate. Like It's amazing how God takes those concerns and they just dissolve over time. You're in his words, you're hearing what Peter says in chapter 5, and suddenly those reminders start to sink in. He cares for you, another great truth from Peter. Again, it's like every prepositional phrase with Peter. You're like, wait, what did he just say? God cares for you. This is the amazing thing. Jesus loves me. It's amazing. I remember, I think it's so wonderful when people that God, God makes some people like with Down syndrome and stuff where they just have very direct thinking. And it's beautiful when one of them realize that God loves me. They'll, they'll run around the whole place going, Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me. And they'll just be shouting it from the rooftops because I think there's something basic about that. When we come into the kingdom of God, we come in like a child. We think like a child. And there's a beauty to that excitement and enthusiasm, to just the idea that God cares for us. Why would the God of the universe care for an ant like me? Do you have any concern and compassion for the ants in your backyard? Do you care for any of the things crawling under your soil? Yet God actually knows us by name since before we were even born. He knit us together in our mother's wombs. I haven't knit any worms together in their, you know, I, it, the idea of an almighty God, in fact, knee to a worm is eternally not sufficient when it comes to the distance between us and God. And that distance gets, gets closed by a caring and loving God. Matthew 6, 31 on this issue of where you put your cares. Therefore, take no thought saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Where are we going to get clothed? You should be clothed in humility. For all these things, the Gentiles seek after. This is what the ungodly look after. For your heavenly father knows that you have needs of all these things. It's not bad to have needs. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take care of, take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient for the day is the evil today. Today I don't have a microwave, but tomorrow God's going to bring one. Amen. That's how that works, right? And it's the body of the church just does that. God's already taking care of your tomorrow needs, but He might not be doing it in your bank account, He might be doing it with somebody else in the church and those resources are just there. I need a better, well-balanced diet, because I'm broke. And you got somebody showing up with boxes of food and a well-balanced diet, right? Just the way God works is so stunning, and we've seen it even as a small little body. And we see it all the time, and we celebrate it. Humility, then, is a weapon of spiritual warfare. We have to put that on, because it's not a natural thought. That humility, I'm just one of the flock, I'm just a reflector of Christ, my Lord is Jesus and I don't get I don't need to be exalted or glorified for that, but I am a sheep of God. And that's a beautiful thing. I am owned by a mighty master. Not too low, not too high. Humility is a weapon of war and it's a command that Peter gives to clothe yourself in humility. So as a Christian, we take that serious because he's one of the elders. I'm going to submit to that. I need to be humble. I'm not less than anybody else, I'm not more than anybody else. I'm just a sheeple. Mr. Sheepo. Verse 5, we're willing to perform any service for Jesus to help and put others first. We're, we're submitting all one to another. What needs to get done? How can I help? We're truthful if we want to be humility. We truthfully align under God and we need him for the spiritual works. We don't shine, we reflect. To be humble, verse 6, we're others-centered. We're not self-centered. We think of others before ourselves. We look to God to see, not for other people, to accept praise. but We're not looking for praise, but we're willing to take it if it's there, and we give it right to God. Verse 7, we are carefree. We embrace cares, and, and we think they might be ours, but God bought our cares when he bought our souls. He took them on as his duty. He can have it. I don't want them. So to be willing to serve without any expectations, but to be willing to serve. To be willing to be nothing and make God turn us into something. What a crazy idea. In fact, the only value we have is the degree to which we reflect our maker. To where we become less and less and less and less important, and God becomes what other people see when they see us. Crazy Jesus people. That's what they see or maybe even sober-minded, really nice Jesus people, depending on how you're called. Elders be examples. Youngers be humble and learn from those examples. Everybody submit to each other like that's what we do. This is how we interact. So we embrace humility all over the place and wherever we're at. So be sober, be vigilant. That's what Peter has learned (laughs) <laughs> again, when Jesus was in the garden and Jesus told him, or Peter was in the garden with Jesus and Jesus said, stay awake and pray with me. Did Peter, no, he got foggy minded and he fell asleep. Yet now he's telling us to be sober and be vigilant. Why? Because he learned how to do that. And over time through grace, he's been able to overcome these things. And now he's able to say, this is the path. Jesus taught him this. Verse eight, be sober, be vigilant. Vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Know that what you're going through is what everybody else in the church is going through. We all go through it. To be sober, he said this a few times chapter 1, verse 13, chapter 4, verse 7. To be sober is to have a clear mind, be calm. Be serious. Know what we're doing is important. We're not lightheaded about this. Again, this is in contrast where he just said, cast your cares away, but now he's saying to be sober. So there's a a discernment here. What kind of cares do I give to the Lord? Ones that take me away from the ministry. They're yours, God. Take care of that. What do I concern myself with? The fact that there is an enemy out there and I need to be somewhat serious about how I, how we do this. So Peter learned how to do this. He learned to stay awake. He learned to be vigilant. He learned to keep his mind clear. So to be sober is to have a level head. <laughs> Humility with a lever, level head, that's a power combo. Honestly, and I honestly think sometimes the world, world mocks this, and they'll say things like, you need to just be yourself and own it and proclaim it to the world. And I think what they're doing is they're mistaking humility with sober-mindedness and they're trying, to, they're trying to mimic it, right? These people don't care what people think about them and there's a power in that. But in the Christian world, I think that it's the real deal. Humility with a sober mind is, I really don't care what other people think about me because I clearly know that God's the only one that matters to me and that's what's underneath that car that looks so nice. There's an engine under it. Humility is the engine. Sober mindedness is what people might see. To be vigilant, <laughs> this is the word Gregorio is where we get the term for the Gregorian monks. To be, They're the watchmen, they're vigilant. So again, to be watchful, to keep your eyes out, to guard the flock. Uh, basically vigilance is to wake up and stay awake. Don't fall asleep in your faith. Don't go through it like the motions. Know that this week God's got something for you to do. Heck, it might even be Monday. God's got conversations he wants you in. He's got things that he's doing. Wake up, keep your eyes open, and watch for it. And then I, I hope you come back on Sunday and tell everybody about it. Here's what's going on. This is cool. Well, I don't want to take up everybody's time. No, 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 no. That's what we want to take time with, right? It's not just the teaching of the word that we do in the church. It's the fellowship. It's the prayer. It's the celebrating and praising what God's doing among us. That stuff's awesome. And it's part of what we do. Even if you got to go teach at a Bible camp all summer. Come back and keep this... Keep track of the stories in a journal and then bring them back to us when you come back. And then we get into this, because your adversary. What's an adversary? An opponent or enemy, someone who's against us. This is an interesting thing. It's a legal term. An adversary is someone who ha- is combating someone else under legal terms. And then we say the devil. The devil is attacking us because he's the great accuser. He has claim on us because we have sinned. And there is a court case that is happening eternally about your soul and where it belongs for eternity. And so we have an adversary. Luckily, we also have an advocate in Jesus Christ. But it is a legal battle that is in the courtroom. Here's the thing. The judge already has decided on the case. The law was written and the case has been decided, but Satan still wants to take us to court. And so for believers, we have an adversary and he's an opponent to us. And if he can't beat us in a courtroom, he's certainly going to make us sit through the trial. And so we have fiery trials, what Peter's already brought up. We're going through a lifetime. The period between salvation and heaven is a trial period for us to go through. So we can go through that trusting our advocate, Jesus Christ, will take care of the court case for us. And we can sit back and play Tetris while that's happening. Um, Or we can be all stressed out about that court case. But know that we need to be sober and vigilant because we do have an enemy that's looking for openings. The word devil there is diabolos. It's where we get the term diabolical or diablo in Satan's uh, Spanish word for Satan. Uh, the, a diabolos is not a proper noun. It's a general term for a liar, an accuser, a slanderer. So we have an, a courtroom adversary that is lying about us. Now, this whole letter for Peter has been about persecution. The primary form of persecution that gets used is an opponent that lies about a believer. Because if we're doing everything like Peter says, and we're being good, honorable, nice people, then any kind of persecution requires a lie to come after us. That lie might be about our character, about our personality, Um, different ways to read this. Some people read this verse as like a capital D devil, the devil is attacking you. But a proper Greek way to read this is a small d-devil. You have an an adversary that is lying about you out there. And they're persecuting you with those lies. So depending on how you read it, the exhortation from Peter remains the same. Either the devil or Satan is coming after you and attacking you, or you simply have people lying about you out there. Either way, there are people that are predators and they're looking to get a piece of you. So they'll say things about you that aren't true. And oftentimes, these will be things that we want to argue about and bicker about. And sometimes we need to be ready to defend ourselves, as Peter has already said. But when people come at you, they're saying, oh, you're just, you're nuts about that Jesus stuff. Well, that's a lie. I'm not nuts about it. I'm humble, sober-minded, and vigilant. That's what I am. wow, uh, you know, You're judgmental. No, I'm not judgmental. I'm repeating the words of God and God will pass judgment on people that don't mind his law. That's not me being judgmental. That's me knowing what the law is. Whether or not you're going to be judged by God, that's God's business, not my business. But my business is I love you and I want you to know what's going to happen if you keep breaking the law. The cops will show up eventually. Frankly, um, the opponent here, interesting characterization, is like a roaring lion. Uh, We already know lions make noise to startle their prey. They're loud, they're raucous, and the louder the lion roar is, the more likely it will freeze the prey. So when the adversary, the devil, comes at us, there's generally a lot of noise around it, right? I know when I know a Buddhist, I don't, like, get all in their face about it. Like, why do you get in the face of a Christian but not in the face of a Hindu person? Like, I don't under... at some level that makes no sense either. So when someone gets upset about the fact that I love Jesus and I praise the Lord and I do that sort of thing, well, isn't there a spiritual element that gets that person so worked up? But they don't, they don't hear that. They don't see that, right? But they're a roaring lion. Here's the other thing. The way to respond to a roaring lion is to move, If you stay still or get frozen or shocked by all that noise, you stop your direction or change it because of that noise, then you are more likely to be eaten by the lion. So as Christians, we don't stop what we're doing for lies. We don't take care for our lives because of a lie. We've given our life to the Lord. We think clearly and we're watchful and we move forward. Here's the other thing. A roar is not a bite. This lion gets to roar at us, but it doesn't get to bite. And you'd say, well, what about martyrs? They get killed. No, 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 no. They don't get killed, right? Their flesh gets killed, but their soul gets to have crowns in heaven. That's another kind of crown, to be a martyr. So the enemy, this lion, can only hurt our flesh. That's all he's got. So Matthew 10, 28, Fear not those which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. We fear God. We don't fear the world. We don't fear the lion. The lion can roar as loud as it wants. Satan can be as loud and as intimidating as he wants to. And by the way, loud and intimidating is not the only tool in Satan's tool belt. Satan's also the angel of light. He can come by misleading people, right? He can come like a like, uh, he can come silently, he can come deceptively, but here he's coming loud and in the form of persecution, which is Peter, what Peter's talking about. He seeks whom he may devour. Satan can only devour the disobedient, those not covered by the blood of Christ. So here's the thing. The devil may be attacking, persecuting, and wanting to destroy believers, but the devil has no authority to do that after the cross. So this is why as Christians, we're there. If God's pleased with our joy and our humility, the liar actually gets pleased by our misery. And I think this is important, Christians. When we live our life in misery, we're doing exactly what the enemy wants. He's devouring us. He's taken his bite as best he can. When we live our life by choosing joy and clothing ourselves in humility, God's pleased with us. So who would you rather please? And this isn't easy to do. Like as Christians, we know this. This is tough. Everything in our flesh wants to dwell in our misery. But our spirit certainly enjoys putting on joy. Our spirit loves just that. Humility is a release valve. I don't have to impress anybody, nor can I let anybody down. I'm only seeking to please my God. So I do it truthfully. And if somebody's upset about that, that's on them right? As long as I can have a clear conscience and a sober mind about what I'm doing and how I'm doing it. The liar can set traps. They can set lures. They can give false praise. But the end of all of that is misery. This is going to be so awesome, but it leads to misery. That's how Satan operates in all of his things. He's seeking for what he can devour. When the the liar roars, we remain sober, vigilant, and humble doesn't matter how loud they yell or how many streets they parade in. We continue to move forward and we resist. Not, no, verse 9, resist him and stand fast in the path. Part of how we stand in a hostile world is we resist the lies. The, the, the liar, the devil, uh, the accuser, we resist that stuff. So silence doesn't work if you want to resist a lie. You have to speak truth in the face of the lie. That gets you in trouble with the liar. It is a natural conflict. Running from the liar doesn't always work. Sometimes there's nowhere left to run, and they've put you in a corner, and you got to answer the questions. Compromising with the liar. Church does not work. We can't compromise with lies. They do, it doesn't function that way. When you compromise with a liar, you're actually giving something up that God's asked you to hold dear. And so we don't do it. And so this is something where it 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 makes me really sad when you see churches trying to compromise on issues of sin to bring people in the door. Right? It's just a sad thing when you see that. We're supposed to be steadfast in the faith. We hold our ground. We defend. We mark our lines and what is sacred according to our faith. And those are the things we keep. Our family is sacred. Our church is sacred. Our love of God is sacred. There are parts of my life like Sabbath. That's sacred. That doesn't belong to anybody in the world that's telling me lies. I it, am it, owned by God. And then the same sufferings. Know that this is common. It's not new. It's a thing in the church that when you give things up to the Lord, when you are steadfast in your faith and you set things apart in the faith, that will create conflict with people. And it's not unique. It's just common to the church. It's what happens. What does that conflict look like? Hopefully it looks pretty mild because you're an honorable person. You know how to submit. You have humility. You're vigilant. You're watchful. You're doing all the things Peter says. And so that persecution maybe looks like just somebody who thinks you're a fool. Okay, I'll be even more um, ridiculous than this, said David to his wife. I'll, I don't care what you think about me. I'm going to praise the Lord with everything I got. So the liar makes you, here's the other tactic of the devil. The liar makes you feel isolated. And Peter's speaking against that. The liar wants you to feel like you're alone, that you're weird, that you're helpless, that there's no way out. But that's a lie too. You're not alone in any way, shape, or form. You became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in affliction, 1 Thessalonians 1, with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you can become examples. You're not alone. You're part of a great 2,000-year-old Christian tradition. You're part of a Judeo-Christian tree that's been growing since the beginning of the world. And your following of the Lord is something that's there. So when the liar does all that stuff, bring it. Here's the other, here's the primary tactic. When he says you're the same Christian, your same sufferings as other people in the face. You resist, you stay steadfast, know that you're part of a church. Here's the great thing. When Satan, when the adversary lies and puts that stuff and you learn how to fight it. It's a really simple equation. The devil is not omnipotent. The liar can't be everywhere at once. And so understand this, the devil, Satan, or just liars in general, adversaries of God, they're not God. They can't compete with God and they have to choose where to put their time and resources. So if they attack you with lies and you turn that into praise for the almighty God, how long will they continue to attack you with lies? it's a waste of their time. And I I honestly think it's just that simple. We know we're never alone, we're never without God's love and care, we're his and we're in it with him no matter how lonely it feels. So if you embrace that idea and then you can turn it back to praise, oh, I'm getting persecuted, praise the Lord, this is a test for me, this is great. Oh, I'm being blessed, praise the Lord, what a gift from God, this is great. If everything gets turned into praise and you can train your heart to do that, man, it's a waste of time for the devil to attack you because all that attack turns into is praise for God. It just produces the opposite fruit. If every time you went to the grocery store, all they had for sale was bricks, how many times would you go back to the grocery store? If every time Satan attacks you, it just gets turned into praise, how many times will Satan come back to attack you? Right? There's just an equation here. Knowing this turns into prayer um, and then Peter closes in prayer. Like This is just part of how he's modeling it for us. Verse 10. In verse 10, it just turns into, here's the but. But's an important word. you got a, an enemy trying to attack you, but, and then he just starts praying. But may the God of all grace who called us into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you've suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Know that the trials are growth tools in the kingdom of God. Peter knows this better than anybody else. I've already pointed out how big of a failure he's been. But he grew from each of those things. So he says the God of all grace, and he knows that God, that God of grace turned Peter into an elder. And Peter was probably the most screwed up person in the Gospels. We don't face suffering alone. We have unmerited favor that we haven't earned from God who called us. We don't face suffering without intention. We're actually called to this and to his eternal glory. We face suffering in a finite flesh, but we have a glorious eternal Jesus welcoming us. By Christ Jesus, we aren't the first to face suffering. We follow the example of Jesus Christ, the type of Jesus A while, we don't face suffering forever. We only face it for a little bit. It's just a bad day. To perfect us, we do face suffering with potential benefits. We actually get to be perfected or grow away from our sin. Some of our trials are to get that out of our life. To establish us, we do face suffering to test our foundations. What kind of Christian are you, really? It's a wonderful thing to go through that kind of persecution and stand properly. And then it's over and you realize, God, that was a cool test. And this time we got through it. And I think that's how Peter felt the next time somebody said, do you follow Jesus? And he said, absolutely, I follow Jesus. Read the book of Acts. He had to go home that night and go, thank you, Lord, for giving me another chance. Because last time I screwed that up. This time I did it to be established, to strengthen. We do face suffering to improve on our weak spots. God knows where your gaps are. He knows where your holes are. He knows where you struggle and where your weak spots are. But to grow into God's will is to be strengthened in some of those areas. What a great feeling as a believer. I'm a better person than I was 10 years ago because God keeps working on me. Man. And then the last one, to settle you. The utter object of Christianity is to find peace in the heart, to be settled. It's good. All is well with my soul. What a great place to be. Well done, good and faithful servant. The outcome of suffering is contentment, peace, and a resolve after it's done. I'm good and I can endure anything in the name of Jesus Christ. Listen to how Paul says this. Philippians 4:10 through 13. He's writing this from a jail cell. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. He's actually thinking of other people while he's in a jail cell. How's that for humility? right? Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. And like this trial is allowing you a chance to be strengthened. Me going to jail helps you learn how to be patient in your love. That's great. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Peace. He's settled. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do this through him who gives me strength. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is an elder. This is a mature believer. Verse 20 in the same chapter, to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. He just reflects it back to God. It's all about God's glory. Paul settled. He's ready. He's sober. He's watchful. He's humble. This is probably why Peter and him had a great regard for each other. They came to Jesus in very different ways, but they came to the same place of contentment and peace. So Paul, man, he's one of us. Same spirit, same Holy Spirit working on my life that worked on Paul and that worked on Peter. Same per- same relationship. Peter has nothing to brag about, yet he's settled and he's able and confident to exhort elders to act this way and be this way because he gets it. It's a, it's a, you'd say it's a magic formula, but it's written there. It's obvious and it's public. Anybody can do this. Yet you have to fight your own flesh to go here. Peter failed to stand with Jesus. He failed to understand the transfiguration. He failed to stay awake in the garden. He failed to be sober-minded, like he's chopping Romans' ears off, right? He failed to feed the flock, and Jesus gave him grace. I just want you to feed the flock, Peter. That's, I've called you to do that. He failed in each and every bit of advice that he just gave in chapter 5. He failed and fell short again and again and again in the Gospels. Here we are 30 years later, and these aren't weak spots anymore. These are his strong spots. Those very things you think you're messed up on in life are the things God wants to use when he fixes them. They're the strongest point that you have. You know, oh, why would God want my pain and my hurt and my misery and my anxiety? Because when those are resolved, all you have is joy in the, in the absence of those weaknesses. They turn into places He can celebrate. Verse 10 says, But God. That's the key shifting point for Peter. Like, because He learned in each of these, He's perfected, established, strengthened, and settled. That's the goal. Boy, if you don't have persecutions in your life, if you don't have those struggles, those fiery trials, and you're like, I really want to grow in the Lord, there is this crazy thing in the Christian faith where you start saying, Lord, I think I'm ready for some trials. (laughs) But be careful when you pray that. Because God's like, great, I want you to go through some trials. I want you to come out the other end better. And I'll be there for you. He won't put you in anything you can't overcome. He's given you everything you need to conquer any trial that you're in. But you will fail more than you succeed at the beginning. And then you don't feel shame, feel resolution. I'm going to try again tomorrow. I'm going to get this right. God, if you give me one more chance, I'll get it right. Be resolved. Be strengthened. Be settled. Then in verse 11. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen means so be it verily let it be true to him be the glory this is how to handle it know that God's on his throne he is uh he is the place we put our cares we love God anyways despite the trials and the persecutions we have joy in the attacks this robs the liar of any pleasure he could get from attacking us it just robs it like you play a practical joke on somebody and they walk in the room and they knew it was coming takes all the joy out of the practical joke They don't even, they don't even get upset about it. If I try to startle my wife, I'll hide around the corner and she'll be walking down and then I'll go, bah! But if she knew I was there, she's just like, oh, hi. Where's the fun in doing that at that point? And I, and I honestly think like there is something where I can't wait to see what God's going to do next. When we get a trial, persecution, someone besmirches our faith. Someone says, well, maybe I'll go with your faith. If you compromise this way, then I'll go with you and do this. Whatever. It's a lie. I'm going to take away the joy from the enemy. Like, I, I, I'm not going to buy that. I'm sober-minded. I'm watchful. I know what you're doing. But boy, to take a trial and go, whoa, this is a doozy. I'm a mess right now. Praise God. What are you going to do to fix this one, God? I, because I'm trusting you're going to fix this because I'm your servant and you have work for me to do. So I'm not going to carry that backpack to moving day. I'm going to take that backpack off, give it to you, and trust that you got it taken care of. Boy, you take all the joy out of it for Satan. And I would love to take away Satan's joy and give my God more pleasure and more joy in what I've done in my life. Every single day. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Memorize that prayer if you struggle with stress, doubt, insecurities. Memorize that. Even in this, Lord, if I can do anything for you, you're taking this, the bigger mess you are, the bigger glory God gets when he uses you. Praise God for the messes. Praise God for the messed up people that serve him anyways, that choose it anyways. Because God knows how big of a mess you are. He knows what's going on in your heart. He knows the insecurity. He knows the hopelessness. He knows how dire it is. He's not dumb. He made you. He made you that way. So when you learn and discipline yourself to just turn that into verse 11, man, to him be the glory, the dominion forever and ever. Praise, you called me and I'm this. Praise God, because if he can use me, wow, look at that God. And then you start sharing that with other people. Look at that God, look at the God I serve. But you're kind of a Jesus freak. Yes, look at the God I serve. Look at what he's done with me. He's turned an unfaithful, selfish human being into a faithful, selfish human being. Only God can do that. Look at what he does. Verse 12. By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love, Peace to to all who are in Christ Jesus, truthfully. Amen. So be it. So verse 12 through the end is, is the way I read this is like Silvanus wrote 1 Peter for Peter. Like he spoke it and Silvanus wrote it, which would account for slightly different vocabulary than you might expect from a fisherman. In the text itself, it admits Peter kind of, I'm writing to you by Silvanus. Silvanus is probably the full name for Silas who we read about in the book of Acts, Um, like Jonathan versus John, right? So Sylvanus is writing a letter. He's writing this by Sylvanus, and he's considering him. And it's almost like in verse 12, Peter like puts his own writing at the end of the book or at the end of the letter, right? He signs it. So this very last bit is kind of Peter confirming this letter might not be in my handwriting, but this is me talking. Um, says he's written to you briefly. I just It's five chapters, but it's a brief letter. I think in the ancient world, letters got like as long as Romans. Like there are some long letters in the ancient world. Um, they didn't have phones, so they had to say everything they needed to say. Um, the practice of the day was to have a writer for you. So the book of Mark, we call it Mark, but that's why we think Peter had Mark write it for him. The other reason is that uh, he mentions Mark in verse 13. Uh, so does Mark, my son. So it seems like Peter has two younger guys that travel around with him and they help him out. Here's the other thing. Pre-eyeglasses, this was extremely common for older guys to have younger guys because the eyes get worse as you get older. So the younger guys could write and it wouldn't be such a strain on their eyes. And I see a lot of glasses around the room. So like those of us that wear glasses, we kind of get that. Um, So this was very common in the ancient world to do that. Um, That idea of I have written to you briefly provides internal evidence for authorship. We get all this at the end. Um, And the true grace of God, as he's considering that younger um, Silas and Mark that are traveling with him, as he he considers him and, and he's written briefly and he exhorts them, testifying that this is true in which you stand. I'm thinking about Silas and I'm just telling you this is true. Everything I'm saying to you is true, in part because he saw this happen in Silas's life. And he saw this happen in Mark's life. He's seen people grow up in the faith that weren't necessarily there with Jesus. So he's considering that. Uh, verse 13 is a confusing thing, or it can be. She who is in Babylon. Well, What the heck is Babylon? What are we talking about here? So she is a reference to the church. Every time we see the church referred to, it's in the feminine. The church is the bride of Christ. Um, so at the beginning, we know that Peter is writing to the churches. And so in verse uh, 13 is arguing that everybody's in town with him there, um, is writing. So the church here, the elect together with you greets you. Everybody here greets you. It's just a way to say, hey, this is me, Sean, writing, but everybody at, at All in Gospel just wants to say we love you and we care about you. And we, we're all thinking of you. So it's a way to say that. Then you get to the Babylon thing. This is either literal or, or symbolic. It could be literal. Um, Peter may have evangelized to the east of Jerusalem. So it could be an argument that Peter went all the way to Babylon with his ministries. And he's writing this letter from the literal city of Babylon. Uh, It did still exist in the first century. So there was a town called Babylon at this time. It's possible. Um, It could be literal also in that there was a Babylon Egypt near Cairo. So it could be that Peter's down in Egypt right now teaching, which says something about the disciples. We kind of end on a couple of these smaller notes um, the disciples went everywhere and taught the Gospels. And so if they're a mirror of what we should be doing, that indicates that we too as a body should be teaching the Gospel in various places. We should be discipling people and making disciples wherever we go. And so right now we are all happen to be called the Minnesota, but Minnesota then through us as a church should be hearing about Jesus Christ. And so looking for and finding ways and praying about how we share the gospel with as many people as possible is something the disciples did. Babylon could also be symbolic. Uh, there was an, a tendency, they could be referring to Jerusalem and that Jerusalem has, has become a city of sin and that like the Tower of Babel, Jerusalem rejected Jesus. So in, in the same way that Babel rejected God's will. Uh, so it could be that this is a nickname for Jerusalem. It could also be a nickname for Rome another city of sin. And we know that Peter went up and taught in Rome. So there's people that think the other reason might, why, why you might replace Rome with Babylon is if you don't want the letter to be intercepted and then have persecution because of that. So it could be that he's just being smart here. And we do that with some of our friends and sisters that are missionaries. When we talk to them and call them, we, don't, we, we use substitute terms to get past the algorithms. Well, there's no reason that a messenger couldn't be stopped by a Roman soldier and then read the letter. And if there's something in the letter that would get him in trouble, it would get the messenger killed. So it could be that Peter just replaced Rome with Babylon there. Then he mentions Mark. Again, this is part of where we get a key indicator that Mark was with Peter and that Mark was a helper of Peter. And when we see the gospel of Mark, we assume that Mark is getting that content from Peter. um, And that's where we get that from. Verse 14 greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. You'll notice in the church, we don't often kiss each other when we see each other. Um, In the Middle East, it's still a tradition of greeting that you kiss people. You know, you do the double cheek kiss. And I think if you're in Southern California, maybe there's more of that. Um, But it's definitely a cultural thing. It's not a command uh, in that we are as Christians supposed to be greeting each other with kisses all the time. Um, but, he, but the peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus, I'd focus more on that. In Matthew 10, 13, Jesus taught that if when he sent disciples out, if the home was deserving that like took care of them, that they should let their peace rest upon it, and if not, let your peace return to you. It became a Christian tradition we see in verse 14 early on that when we go out to places and they host us or they don't host us, that leaving your peace is just that idea of shalom with people, is a good way to do it. So despite the fact that Peter just exhorted them for four or five chapters, he's leaving his peace with them. And I just like that idea. Jesus taught them to do it. Even in their letter writing, they end with peace. Hey, you guys should do these things. You should fix this. You should do that. Peace, I love you. Right? And he's just sandwiching his love on either side of this exhorting letter. Those who are in Christ Jesus. There's plenty of enemies of Jesus out there. There's even people that use Jesus as a swear word, which I still don't understand, right? There are lots of people that don't regard and respect Jesus out there, but to those who are in Christ Jesus, at least within the church, have peace. Be at peace. And in in chapter four, be of one mind. So that idea, he's praying for peace, patience, love. Here's the summary of the whole epistle. So instead of reading the whole letter, I'm just gonna do this. Chapter one, gird up your loins to be holy in honor, with one mind, in fervent love, to resist the devil, peace in Jesus Christ. That would be the short version of this letter. Right? So there's that idea. I'll do it again. Gird up your loins to be holy, in honor, with one mind, in fervent love, to resist the devil, peace in Jesus Christ. That's what Peter wants. That's what any godly person wants of any godly group of people. Just be ready to do it and go in there and have peace about it. Be at peace with all of this stuff. It's all good. God's still on his throne. Amen? So be it. Dear Lord, we love you and we thank you and Lord, help us to be ready to go to work, to put on our clothing of humility and to get to work. Lord, we're not above the ground and we're we're not below it. We're with the flock and in that we're reflecting your light. We have a good shepherd and we want to tell people about it. We eat very well, Lord. Uh, You lead us to green pastures. You help us to Be at peace with our enemies, Lord, you do all the things you promised you would do. Uh, And you do it in Christ Jesus, and we thank you for those things. We bring glory to your name. We choose joy in all things. And Lord, we know that there are people in this room that are going through things and suffering through things. Lord, may they just hand that to you, pray about it, and have faith that you'll deal with it. Because you are God, and you have made promises. And you keep your word, and you have throughout all of human history. And we know, Lord, that you never change. You will keep your word moving forward, too. So we love you. We praise you. We adore you, Lord. And we have our peace in you. In Jesus' name. Oh, I was on the ground the whole time. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.